As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you in part by Upside.com, Harry's.com, Dell, and The Great Courses Plus. And we're back. Wait. Oh, I'm not going to. You know what? That we are, and we're glad to be here. And yes, Forrest has been talking like that all week. Not only that, he's wearing cowboy boots right now. And you can see him if you tune in right now. <laughs> we're, we're coming. Sorry, I'm the, yeah, all right, I got that out of I, I'm not going to say I got that out of my system, because no, I just haven't. I, I, I like and it. And on the drive over here, I saw a guy hauling horses in a trailer, so it's a good omen for it a is good a, show. So we're getting the cowboy on here. We're coming back down to earth tonight. But before we do, a reminder that we got a bunch of new shirts in the store at astonishinglegends.com if you are looking for some cool swag. Yeah, and we also want to thank everybody who's been sending us emails lately. I don't know, after we started the new website, we it seems like we got a flush of them too. Yeah, it had dropped down to a manageable level for a bit, and now <laughs> it has think, become unmanageable well, again. <laughs> when I think people realize, <laughs> which I love, it's, it's great. Yeah, we answer as many as we can, and it's not a whole lot. But either through our regular account, which is how we usually got them, we still have those. Yes, so we have them all. Four years from now, when I get around to it, I'll answer those. Yes, <laughs> but then I'm thinking when I get to assisted living, I, I, when I'm going to be a daily you'll, activity, you'll finally have the time. Yeah. Well, we're always generally in the weeds when it comes to lining up our next show and doing the research and all of the business that goes on with this thing. That kind of prevents us from answering every email, and they have come and gone. But Scott and I want you to know, we really do actually read every single one of them, and we feel compelled to tell you every time. Yes, we do read those. And here's another thing. If you ever wondered how you can be one of the segues we have on the show, if you don't follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you wouldn't have any idea how to do that. Well, we've made it easier. If you'd like to send your voice in to be used on the show, visit astonishinglegends.com slash listener dash segues. That's L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R and then a hyphen segues S-E-G-U-E-S. And just follow the instructions. We need more now. Speaking of which, we would also like to congratulate our editor, Sarah Voorhees, on her recent Emmy nomination as a supervising sound editor. We're frantically hoping that we will be able to continue to afford her. <laughs> well, you can't afford me now. Yeah, that's true. We are we're running a little behind. I know. On that note, our show next week might be slightly delayed due to Sarah being all out of pocket and stuff to go to the Emmy ceremony. So don't blow up our inbox if we're not exactly out on Friday. Don't worry. We will deliver. All right. Let's set the Wayback Machine for the 1860s. Stop it. <laughs> Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. A mine is a hole in the ground, owned by a liar. 
Mark Twain. Join us tonight as we go back to the Old West to take a look at the story of the hanging death of Henry Plummer, the sheriff of a gold mining town known as Bannock in Montana. You know, Forrest, when you brought this up to me as an idea, I wasn't sure this story had legs. <laughs> You're still not sure. No, I, you know, it's, <laughs> I can't believe what it's unfolded into. This guy truly was an astonishing legend. Like, the, yes. and almost more than him, it's the story around him. And, Absolutely. And yeah. that's the part that surprised me a little. I guess I'm not surprised now because everything we do turns into a huge magilla. <laughs> yeah. And rabbit hole upon rabbit holes and donkey holes and miners holes. It's all... It is set against the backdrop of a very important time in the history of the United States because the Civil War was happening during a large part of this story and people's affiliations, political motivations, how they felt about this new country, essentially, plays a lot into what people did as far as what they thought law and order should be, how the country should be governed. Well, it's an interesting thing, and we did say this already, and you've seen the title of the episode, but this show is about a man named Henry Plummer, and it's about the events that swarm around him during his brief life, really. Yeah, he wasn't, well, <laughs> it's like everyone, as long. you say back then, they lived hard and fast, they died rather quickly, or there's a lot of ways to kill you in the Old West. It struck a chord with me because there's parallels with shows that we've done before, this is an Old West story, but Henry yeah. Plummer came from Maine. Well, everybody started off from the East Coast where they landed. And it's kind of hard to picture because nowadays we just think, where are you from? Like San Francisco? You know, well, that's a, one of the major cities of the West. But say you're from Utah. At a time, there was no Europeans there. There's no settlers. They all moved in at a certain point. And it wasn't really until after Lewis and Clark at the turn of the 19th century, 1803, 1805, that time, when it was actually even explored. We had all this land and we didn't even know what was further west of this. Right. You know, yeah. uh, that's what they say. St. Louis is the gateway to the west because not much had been explored. And the region we're going to talk about, which is the Idaho Territory, and then later, you know, the Montana and the Washington Territories and the Oregon Trail, all those great western stories as one of the authors we're going to cover tonight says, in this whole area that we're talking about at that time, there might have been a hundred white guys <laughs> or less. Yeah. A hundred people of European descent that had moved from the east out to the west. So it's a great time of expansion, controversial time because who owned the land before them or who was there that got shoved aside to make way. But right or wrong, it's the history of the United States. And this story of Henry Plummer, you didn't even know the name, did you? I feel like I knew the name in the back of my mind, but I didn't know much about it. It's not like with Butch and Sundance right. or where you have this catalog of information. Yeah. The details of his story were new to me, and it's been really fascinating. Well, that's really a reason I was pitching this to you and really pushing it to cover, because this really is kind of forest country. I've been to a lot of these areas, the towns that we're going to talk about. I've been through this region, not specifically telling you what part, but <laughs> through the with a family on road trips. We've gone all through these little towns. Plus, we love old ghost towns and, and uh, Western lore. And our own family history is really connected with a lot of these stories. And so that's a large part of my heritage growing up in this region, the Idaho and Montana and Eastern Washington regions. So Plummer was a guy I'd heard about since childhood, a very legendary character, you could say, for a few reasons. He was a lawman. He was also possibly a notorious bandit. 
yeah. and leader of a group of bandits. And that's kind of the main story we'll talk about. But basically, the reason I wanted Scott to dive into this, I wanted to know more about it because it's probably one of the most interesting, I think, and famous stories you've never heard of about the Old West. Yeah, it is. It, I guess people in the region are real familiar with it, but it's not a story that's ever been splashed across, you know, the cultural headlines when you talk about the Old West. It's not the first thing that comes up, but yeah. this was a big deal. This was a flap, if you will. This yeah. story surrounds a group of vigilantes, They kind of the original vigilantes. When it comes to law and order in the United States, exactly, it has strong roots in the events that we're going to talk about in this series on Henry Plummer. That is the entire background. And you probably haven't heard a lot about it because there haven't been any big movies made with this character. You always hear about... Yeah, the, I can't the, figure that out. I was actually surprised. Well, I, I think there's a script coming. I hope we get some... Uh, <laughs> We get a foot in the door there somehow <laughs> you know, with some kind of movie project, even just for bringing it up. But yeah. there's probably a reason in that it didn't get a lot of press. What you hear about is, you know, the Johnson County Wars over cattle and, yeah. and miners and railroad men and the little guy getting pushed around. Well, and, and the Lincoln he, County War, the famous. Yeah, sorry, one. yes, the Lincoln is County Wars. Is that the one Wars. you're referring to? I think there was Johnson County. Well, all these counties. Look, yeah. They, it's, well, it's, Lincoln it's, County yeah. was the... Uh, right was Billy the Kid and, and the Regulators and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah, and, and even Tom Horn, portrayed by Steve McQueen. That was yeah. another character like this, where he was a guy that may have been railroaded. Yeah. Most likely, in my opinion. Of course, you hear about the Southwest. Tombstone, Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp. Here you have a very similar character. As we begin to unfold this story, think about the types of people, the adventurous types of folks that moved out West. That is a certain breed of person, a certain breed of character that takes... Albert Osman. Yeah, very much so. Uh, if we're, you don't know who he is, go and check out Kidnapped <laughs> by Bigfoot. Kidnapped, yeah, not that they were all kidnapped by Sasquatch, but these are adventurous people who didn't think that, you know, too much about carrying a pack, uh, some kind of pack animal or horse or mule, and venturing out into the unknown to make your fortune. Yeah. These are adventurous people, which... Nowadays, it's probably transmuted into maybe people who do extreme sports or still, you know, hike the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Trail, which is not a very common occurrence. We're all very used to our comfort here. But back then, different terms. So the thing that I wanted to point out is where I come from and some of the people that I... Where I, do you come from, Forrest? That region I just mentioned. Okay. So, But the vibe and the ethos, you could say, has a lot to do with that Old West mentality where it's law and order... We leave you alone to do your own thing, but your thing better not come onto my property or or bother me because we don't put up with that. That's a very broad frontier justice law and order thing, but you hear it as Texas justice sometimes. Not to that extreme, but it is very much people letting other people be free, but don't mess with me. Is that why you won't let me put my coffee cup on your side of the table? Oh, here? heck no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> You used to do a lot of business travel, right? Yeah, I used to, up until recently. And I wished I knew about this great new money-saving way to buy all of your business travel. It's called... Upside.com. Yes. Yeah, and I'm surprised no one's worked out a deal like this before, specifically for the business traveler, because Upside.com uses the clever technique of bundling your flight and hotel to save you a ton of money, which could add up to thousands saved over the course of a year. Right, and here's the kicker. Every time you buy your flight and hotel on Upside.com, not only are you saving money on those, 
but they also send you an Amazon gift card worth $100, $200, even $300 every time. I guess that's the upside. That's a pretty good upside. And not only that, you still get to keep all your frequent flyer miles. They're able to send you the free Amazon gift cards because bundling your flight and hotel saves money, getting the whole trip down to one low price. Which is why it's a great solution for anybody who travels for business, and it really saves a lot of money for small or home-based businesses. Getting there is half the problem because you still need a place to stay once you get there. And you can buy almost anything on Amazon these days. Even if you don't travel for business, I'm sure you know someone who does. So you should tell them to take just three minutes and check out this pretty cool deal. Go to Upside.com. That's U-P-S-I-D-E dot com. And once you're there, click on the word radio listeners. Yes, that means you guys too. It's at the top of the page next to the little microphone icon. Then enter our promo code BIZTRIP. That's B-I-Z-T-R-I-P. And not only are you going to save big money on travel, but you're guaranteed to get at least a $100 Amazon gift card on your first trip. So start saving big on travel with Upside.com and get a big gift card with every trip. It's kind of a no-brainer. Oh, then it's perfect for someone like you. You saw. Minimum purchase required. See site for complete details. This is Avery Bray. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so what we're going to do with this next section is give you a brief overview of the big picture of Henry Plummer's life. And then after that, we'll come back and get into more detail. So you're wondering by now, just who is or was Henry Plummer? And as I said, it's probably one of the bigger characters of the, the Northwest, West, Old West part of it that you may not have heard of. So one thing I want people to keep in mind as they listen to this is that it's a hotly debated point of contention to this day about yeah. elements of his life, what happened to him, and was it justified? And so there'll be historians on either side of this that say he was an innocent guy, did nothing wrong, upstanding citizen, just misunderstood. Other people said he was indeed a bandit and had it coming to him. So by most accounts... We all got it coming, kid. There you go. <laughs> what, wait, that's, what's that from? Clint. Unforgiven. Oh, or, yes, yeah, of course. I can't do it. But, of course. You know. Well, yeah. But uh, <laughs> in line with those great Westerns, there's a lot of elements to this story, which it's the real deal, folks. So who was he? Well, by most accounts, Henry Plummer was born in 1832 in Addison, Maine, Washington County. It's still a small town to this day. The census in 2010, there's only about 1,266 residents so even the East Coast, you had some bigger cities, but a lot of towns were still small, and a lot of them remain small to this day. And the towns that they were heading to are not like what you see in the movies, where it's a huge, thriving town with bustling enterprise happening. A lot of them were tent cities. The other thing that's fascinating about this, as you might have surmised, being from Maine, and if you remember the Mary Celeste episode, and we talked a lot about that area, a lot of people were shipbuilders or went to sea. That's right. It wasn't necessarily a jumping off point for settling the Wild West. <laughs> no, no. Certainly in Maine, it's a seafaring state. Exactly. And that's what most of his family did. And his brothers, they all went to sea. They became captains, the ones yeah. that lived decent lives. He had some siblings that died very young. But right. the ones that didn't wound up going to sea in various positions, a lot of them became captains. And the plumbers actually were a prominent family in Maine, but his branch of the plumbers was not particularly prominent. So yeah. the jobs that they got offered, including his father, apparently, were you get the job. Yes, you've got the job, but yeah. you're going to be the cook or the steward <laughs> right. or whatever, but yeah. you get to go with us because 
we're all part of the same big thing. Exactly. And his dad actually died at sea, who had Ah. taken up on an operation where someone had gotten up, scraped together a bunch of money, and they bought a ship, and they were going to go over. This was before the Panama Canal, so they were going to go around Cape Horn and come up to San Francisco, and the whole thing just went south. It took them three weeks to get around the Cape. The weather was bad. People were dying. And by the time they got there, they, like, had lost interest. (laughs) I'm sure, yeah. And his dad died on that Uh, that Yeah, see, as we talked about on the Mary Celeste episodes, life, and especially life on the sea, is very dangerous and rough and extremely uncomfortable. And that's why you have a lazarette hold for the people who passed away. Yes. Stow them up front. Much of human history is riddled with people dying before their time. Yeah. Conditions were very rough. So... Keep that in mind as you realize that these people are heading kind of into danger just getting to another city or another town or trying to make a living for themselves. These are very hardy people already, hardy stock, you could say. And so, like a lot of folks, he moves west and decides to settle in Nevada City, California, which it's northeast of San Francisco and northeast of Sacramento. That's right. And when he gets there, he decides he's going to set up a ranch. He's going to try his hand at ranching. But what you have to remember is he had ailments. He was not healthy. He had a hard time breathing. And yeah, he, he, it was part of the reason the doctors had suggested that he leave right. Maine. And he waited until after his father passed away to do this. It was time for him to move on with his life. And I think he was had been left caring for two siblings as well. He must have made plans for them or he got to a point where it was just like, well, it's time for me to to well, the, but yeah. out on my own, and with yeah. the gold rush happening, it was a very enticing thing for a boy who's 18, 19 years old. Of course. filled with adventure. Right. There wasn't a whole lot for him to do if you weren't, I think, in the seafaring community there. And they were having money troubles since the father, the breadwinner, had passed on. So yeah. he promised his widowed mother that he was going to head west, young man, and try and make his fortune and, of course, come back and support the family a little. Right. So he sets up this ranch, but it turns out he's not really cut out for that. The work's a little bit difficult for him. So then he winds up moving into Nevada City proper and becomes a salesman for a bakery. Which right, is, yes. Which is interesting. And I guess he was really, really good at this. He expanded that business to where it became one of the most prominent bakeries in town and through some good fortune where another bakery burned down. But no one, <laughs> no, there's been no implications there. Uh, right. But lots of things were burning down back then. It just continued to expand and explode, and he wound up buying out his partner and all that sort of thing. And as a result, he had this long list of clients because he was baking for all the businesses and the town was really booming. This is from the original definition of a boom town. Yeah. And he was delivering baked goods all over town and being the salesman, he knew everybody. He was very good at pressing the flesh. And this was at all the saloons and the bordellos and the whatever. And so then he became naturally suited for the political office opportunity. Yes, this is one thing that you'll hear throughout the descriptions of Henry Plummer. One, he's a very handsome young man, very persuasive, very charming. Yes, charismatic. Char- very, that word comes up a exactly, lot. Exactly, very charismatic, and he's ambitious. And people, Extremely. People are gravitated towards that, still are today, and he gets a lot of people behind him. He gets supporters, so things are looking great. And then... He decides he wants to be in law enforcement, and he actually serves as a city marshal for Nevada City, California. So you can see that he's becoming an authority figure. He's getting a lot of attention. At a young age. At a young age. A lot of people had achieved a lot back in the old days at very young ages. 
because they didn't have the span of years that we have now to goof off. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you had to get to your business right away and be good at it. And I only your just stopped goofing off like, <laughs> when we started this podcast. Actually. I never have. Yes, oh, wait, exactly. now maybe that's goofing off too. And now you're doing it right here. Yeah. People took notice of him. So he was getting to be very popular and one of the pillars of the community. So he noticed that he had some personal magnetism and he could use it to his benefit. Yeah. And again, being ambitious and really at the end of it, he wanted, like a lot of people who came out West, there was a little bit of gold fever and he wanted to strike it rich because he was hearing stories that a lot of these prospectors were hitting it rich with these different discoveries. And, and as you can picture it, as the news was coming back, a little different area be like, oh, Northern California's kind of tapped out. It's been going since uh, Sutter's Mill in 1849. All the placer gold's been scooped up. Okay, what about Oregon? Now there's a gold strike in Oregon. Now there's one in Idaho. Now there's one in Montana. What is exactly, just for our yes. listeners that don't know, placer gold is the gold that you find in the streams? Like exactly. Pan panning, yes. and you don't really have to get super crazy down in a dark hole to no, get to it, right? Just briefly, yeah, this is a good time to explain this as the way that gold was discovered and and processed back then, usually it's in hard rock. So it's in the sides of mountains. As they say, gold is where you find it. So it could be anywhere yeah. popping up. In Australia, the hand of fate was a, a massive nugget found by a guy with a metal detector pretty much out in his backyard. So it can be found anywhere. But in the rugged hills and mountains of the Continental Divide and, and westward, what happens is that there might be a gold vein in the side of a mountain, and as erosion happens, it's washing the gold and eroding it down the sides of the mountains. It starts to collect in streams. Gold is heavier than the other rock and mineral elements that are found in the stream, so it collects on the lee side of boulders, and so that's what prospectors did. They dug up the sand and the dirt, they panned for it. After panning and sloughing off the lighter dirt material with water, you could dry pan too, but water is always a big factor because it does a lot of the work for you. What you end up in the bottom of the pan is the tiny flakes of gold. That's placer mining. That is spelled yes. like placer, P-L-E-C-E-R. Yeah, there's actually, a, I think, a pl placer California or yeah. placer county, I think. So, so that's one way of doing it. When you have a bunch of guys together, you pool your efforts and then you can do hydraulic washing and sluicing, which is now you're using a lot of force of water to clear a lot of dirt away to find more and better and bigger nuggets. In the early days when they had pumps, it would actually, like, you could hose down the side of a mountain, and you'll still see some scars if you travel in the area where the, all the trees have been cleared off the side of a mountain, leaving a huge scar. Or they would do dredging, dredge up the entire stream bed looking for a mechanized manner. But at this early stage, yeah, they would build sluice boxes and dump the dirt in there and use the water, you know, divert the stream and have the water going over and then have little uh, riffles, I guess, uh, that would collect the gold and pick that up. So that's what gold dust is or you can find natural nuggets, or you had to mine it from the ore, and that's the backbreaking part of that. So he was doing very well with his prospecting and mining. And in Northern California, he had some success with it. Yeah. So when he hears that a gold had been recently discovered in the gold fields of Western Montana Territory, he travels out there. He decides he's going to make his fortune now in this new boomtown called Bannock, Montana. And by the age of 31, again, using his charm and his industriousness and his guiling ways, by the age of 31, he was elected sheriff of Bannock, Montana, and he served from 1863 to 1864. So yeah. A short time span, and uh, we're going to get to why that was so short <laughs> in a moment here. Yeah. He uh, might not yeah. have been all that he seemed, or was he? Well, we don't know. Yeah. So as we've described, him, sounds like a regular upstanding citizen, doesn't he? A real pillar of the community, right? Well, except that during that time, 
he'd already been accused of killing several men and some in self-defense, some perhaps not so much, and was suspected of being the ringleader of a gang of highway robbers, or as they were known at the time, road agents, who became better known as the Innocents. The, his was particular their, gang. His, yeah. <laughs> the flavor of his particular gang. Yeah. They called themselves the Innocents, and the reason was, it was said, and again, some of this might be rumored, there's a lot of people who contest these details, that the gang themselves would, there was a lot of them, maybe at some point over a hundred gang members operating in various locations, and as they say, road agents are kind of hanging out by the side of the road waiting for rich travelers to pass by. Age-old custom. Yeah, this goes all the way back to Robin Hood. Exactly, (laughs) and and, and earlier, yeah. Except he was supposedly giving it away. Yes, but (laughs) there's a lot of people getting robbed on the roads. That's just, it still happens to this day. Just briefly, I met an old-timer in the park here in Los Angeles, not far from where we are, who was old enough to remember his grandmother or grandfather telling him stories about people coming through the pass that the 101 freeway takes from Hollywood Uh, to the San Fernando Valley. And there would be Native Americans up on the hills and would rob people going back and forth between San Fernando Valley and Hollywood. Wow. Yeah. They were coming back from auditions, I guess. (laughs) I just have some papers. Capital records, yeah. Yeah, I have some headshots if you want (laughs) them. Again, it's a very age-old custom of thievery because that's how you're transporting actual wealth. So... In this case, it would be treasury notes, gold dust, gold nuggets, payroll. You're also robbing the travelers themselves of their personal possessions. Yeah. The wealth is coming to you. You don't have to go out and get that job, as so many criminals like to do. It's They think it's the easier way to do that, but it's and, very treacherous. And importantly, it doesn't always make sense to kill the people you're robbing because <laughs> yeah, yeah. when they live, they keep going back and forth and right. taking stuff with them. Right. And also when you murder somebody, it's a whole different animal in terms of the kind of pursuit that's oh, going to happen. As it is today, it's a much more serious offense. But of course, as you rob them, you threaten them with their lives. If they told anybody, right. you'd hunt them down and kill them. And there's only so many roads they can travel over unless it's open territory. So that happens a lot in this story as well. But in this case, getting back to the innocence and why they were called that, uh, supposedly that was claimed to be a passphrase between them. So I would say like, Scott, did you take my sarsaparilla? And you'd say, I am innocent. And that was a code where like, oh, this guy's part of the innocence gang. Yeah. They also, uh, apparently, as it was rumored, that they had a special knot with their neckties. Oh, that's right. Uh, they I tied read it that. in a certain fashion so you could recognize that. Yeah. You know, look, all, every secret society, you got to have your code words here, like Knights of the Golden Circle. Yeah. Certain way you positioned your, you, you cocked your hat or in a picture you closed one eye in a certain way or you pointed your pistol. Also, they supposedly had a funky haircut or something. Oh, I didn't read that. Well, I, I, yeah, that was a little blurb. Yeah. Again, a lot of these details throughout history have been embellished, so it's well, hard to know. Yeah, and it's know. difficult, too, when you're talking about outlaws or these kinds of events, because these cheap books are coming out that are glorifying the Old West and yes. the crimes, and so these details, there's no way that they're not getting conflated to a certain point. You do as much research as you can, and you find publications if you have the history, and we're referring to... And, authors who have done that research, but it's hard to know if yeah. they had the special haircut and a saying <laughs> and a special necktie. I mean, at this point, they got so many special things going on, you would yeah. clock them right away. <laughs> <laughs> right. I look well, at that nitwit. He's well, in the innocence. Look <laughs> at his tie. Look at that haircut. An important point you brought up is that these are very small towns. There's yeah. a boom town. So when somebody did something bad, they knew who it was. They had a suspicion and suspicion plays a huge part in this overall story. And in a moment here after this section, we're going to talk about the source materials we use because it really plays an important part about what you read and who writes history. Is it the victors? Who has the final word? How does that get transmogrified throughout history? And and when do we end up believing? 
that's a large part of the story in the grander sense of what is the real truth here? So we're going to try and really get to it as best as we can. And we're going to tell you about the books that we were sourcing. But that's basically who Henry Plummer was. He was at some point a troubled but successful young man who tried to make a name for himself, got himself to a pretty high position, and then things turned bad. I don't think he's totally innocent as far as his associations with certain individuals who turned out to be real bad guys and his connections that have been made and some that, yeah, were conflated out of a desire to put an end to the robberies and some murders that were going on in the region. So one thing you should know is that he was no shrinking violet. He actually ended up killing several men. And some historians will say totally all in self-defense. There was a, a reasonable explanation for each one. It just kind of looked bad if you look throughout the course of history. And then there's people who were purposely trying to defame him and they had the power. And so that's how the history ended up against him. And there's other people who say like, no, every guy he killed was, it's pretty shady. And obviously he was not shy about plugging some guy, ventilating him, as they used to say, with his revolver. So what we do know is that, yeah, he did kill people not just as sheriff either. And then there are still some researchers and historians that say there was no gang at all. It was all just billowous kind of news story at the time. So who was he? What is the true story of Henry Plummer? Good guy? Bad guy? Well, this is where it gets interesting because there are clearly people that started to not trust him for whatever reason. Yes. But there were other people that did trust him. The question is, were all the people that trusted him bad dudes. I mean, because there, <laughs> right. it got to a point, things became very heated. One of the things that I understood, we're going to talk about our sources here in a minute, but one of the things that I understood from one of the books we refer to tonight entitled A Decent Orderly Lynching, <laughs> yeah, which might be tipping our hand a little bit here. One of those books talks about how in these mining communities, these boom towns, yes, they were lawless, but the crime was not as rampant and crazy as you might have thought, going on all the time. Yeah. So that when things were happening or there was an uptick in violent crime or burglaries or murders, that got noticed. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, five people got shot this afternoon. <laughs> it, yeah. it, it was, or, you know, five people were robbed. If it all yeah. happened in a particularly noticeable way, then people were upset about it. And the problem was the towns were growing so fast and the gold rush was happening so fast that there was no provisional government there to arrange for law and order. Right, because some authors will say, well, you know, they had the people to do it and they had the knowledge. There were certainly lawyers there and people that had administrative skills in the towns, but there was no U.S. congressional statement or setup for these territories because it was outpacing that. It was outpacing U.S. government law, not territorial government law. So you had nothing official. You might have a sheriff in the region. You might have deputies. And you might have U.S. military, but the day-to-day -day stuff that was happening, there really wasn't an operating and efficient means of justice. And that is part of the argument, whereas other people will say, like, no, they just got out of hand. The people that took the law into their own hands were greedy city leaders, town leaders that had the means and the willpower to just get people out of the way that troubled them or that they wanted their possessions. So that's the other side of the argument. But... As my point to your statement there of crime not happening, we were talking about this earlier. Say you live in a small town, your population's about a thousand people maybe at this point. 
And within the span of two months, there's eight or nine robberies or murders in that short period of time. That's going to seem like a crime wave to you. Yeah. In these small towns, maybe not even that many people, maybe 100 to 200 people in a small town, you end up kind of knowing who everybody is. Yeah. And when somebody who's a young person that's kind of beloved or just well-known gets to be the victim of a murder or robbery, it gets people riled up. And in this day and age, as I was alluding to the vibe of the area, the region, is that people want something done. And they want it done now. Right. So what happened here is there was an outbreak of crime. We're going to get real specific about the crime and the things that happened and the people that were involved and the dates so you can get a feel for it. But the end result of it is that people decided that they needed to take justice into their own hands. They were concerned. At that point, for whatever reason, they did not trust their own sheriff who at this time was Henry Plummer. Right. Well, because there were a couple of eyewitnesses, a younger boy and somebody else we're going to talk about a little bit later, who claimed that he was actually one of the holdup men. Right. One of the road agents there. And there was talk amongst the other road agents as they were getting captured that Henry was somehow involved. So in, in one kind of full confession, they say there was a, a character, a Red Jaeger that we're going to talk about who gives a full confession. Now people could say like, well, yes, but it's not a court of law. You know, this is just a confession taken by the guys that wanted Plummer out of the way. So how can you trust them? So there's all these little minor bits that are happening, but generally... As the history is known, is that the townspeople, as well as the city fathers and the people kind of in charge, started to get suspicious about Henry Plummer because there were some weird coincidences. Nothing was happening. He had a checkered past, and that reputation followed him from California to the Montana Territory. So that didn't totally get away. As, as much as he was well-loved and as much of a charmer as he was— People still knew he did some bad things. There was also a little bit of what I call the Superman factor. Yeah. Where when a lot of the crimes were committed, he was nowhere to be found. <laughs> right. He was mysteriously uh -huh. not in town. Right. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of this that adds up. And just think about the major sensational court cases we've heard about in the last 20 years in the United States here. I'm not going to name names, but, you know, by the time they're on the news and all these news and crime shows... You individually probably have a pretty good idea of the guilt or innocence of this celebrity person who's committed a crime. And so that's kind of how it was there. It's like, look, this is looking too shady. This guy's involved somehow. And whether that's true or not, we'll leave you to decide later. But what happened, the action that happened is that the leaders in Virginia City formed the Vigilance Committee of Alder Gulch, which is nearby where some of the gold had been discovered in the area, which sparked the boom town of Bannock. And there was a bigger town, Virginia City, the shipments of gold and money and people and their valuable possessions was happening between Virginia City, Bannock, and these roads, these wagon train roads, these stagecoach roads. So yes. that's how you get around. Either you're on a personal horse, you're on your own personal wagon, your buckboard wagon, or you're traveling by stagecoach, and that's how our folks were getting robbed. And ultimately, to this day, that area became the largest placer find in U.S. history. Yeah, so there's So you a, know there was a <laughs> bevy of activity going a on. A bevy here. of activity, a lot of new people moving into the area, I mean relatively, and therefore a lot of easy pickings because mining is hard work and gold panning is hard work out in the hot sun. So it's just much so it's so much easier for a person of a criminal intent to just go take it from somebody. 
and the Vigilance Committee claimed that Henry Plummer and his gang had killed over 100 people in the whole territory, not just the town of Bannock. That would be seriously a, some kind of a wave. Yeah. But all together, because it was kind of a network of these road agents, and they were colluding, and they were giving each other information. They knew when people were moving from right. point A to point B, and at certain times of year, more traveling was happening where miners were transporting their spoils. Yes, exactly. To take them to other cities or to banks or to buy supplies. And there was times that you could predict that this was going to be happening. Right. And the road agents would not only know about this just because of the general time of year, but also because their network was so big in theory. Yes. There was word on the street. Old Tom, you know, Longhorn is going <laughs> to take his, is going to yeah. go in and buy a month's worth of supplies today or whatever. So, and then they knew that, well, we should get out there on wagon road number 24 and... Yeah, well, the junctions, yeah. And then uh, you get pounced upon when you're bottlenecked somewhere or the stage has to slow down. So, yeah, these aren't totally dumb guys. I mean, they're lazy in a way, like a lot of criminals, in that they'd rather just take money from people than earn it. But that's how they operated. So that was kind of the feeling. Now, the Vigilance Committee was not operating totally scot-free either without public blame. There was a lot of people who didn't agree with their methods. Well, th this would get down to the very definition of, of vigilantism and what vigilantism is. And yes, what organized. Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and we're talking about vigilante action organized by, say, like your city fathers, leaders of the business community, pillars of the community. These are known guys. It's not like somebody out for revenge that's operating in the dark of night. Well, they did operate in the dark of night because some people were complaining that they were rounding up people at night when the other townspeople could not convene to see what they were doing. Yeah. That's another complaint. Or you could just say like, well, that's when uh, bad guys are drunk and passed out in their cabins and that's the best time to nab them, which right. is what the police do now. Right. They do early morning raids because they know bad guys are out partying till two or three, they go back home and the best time to nab them is like four or five in the morning. There you go. These are things that you're going to see carried on to stay law enforcement. Stay off the drugs, kids. <laughs> you know, stay in school. These are things that are going to happen or patterns you're going to see in today's law enforcement. But the mindset of people was much different back then. It's like the definition of self-defense was much less liberal than it is now. You had to have really good cause for shooting somebody, and as you claimed, in self-defense. So that occurs with Mr. Plummer himself. And there's, again, as we said, there's some historians that say, Everything that happened to him, that was all self-defense. It can be easily proven. All right, so I was reading about Moore's Law the other day. Do you remember what that was? Well, I think so. Isn't that the one about computing power doubling every two years? Well, that's close. It actually said that the number of transistors you can fit on a silicon chip would double every two years. Well, which is what I just said, except you said it differently. Well, point taken. <laughs> All right, so speaking of points, what is your point? <laughs> well, I was thinking about how this applies to printers and how far they've come in a short amount of time. Do you remember the sound that dot matrix printers used to make? Yes, it was excruciating all throughout college. Well, Dell's printers are not only quieter than that, they do it all. Print, scan, copy, fax, and they get your car washed. You understand that we can't just say whatever we want in these commercials, right? <laughs> Why not? All right, they don't get your car washed. That's probably not too far away, though, especially with Dell printers. And thanks to a price war the past few years, prices on printers have dropped dramatically. What used to cost $400 is now only 100 bucks. And even though they don't get your car washed, they work wirelessly, and now you can print straight from your camera's memory card, too. And the good folks over at Dell have come up with an exclusive offer for our listeners for this week only. 40% off all Dell printers plus free shipping. That's almost half off. 
Dell's prices, even before that discount, are super low. Their printers print photo quality pictures, and they even have 3D printers too. They've also worked super hard to reduce the high cost of ownership that catches you on the back end with ink and toner. Their printers are hyper-efficient, so all of those supplies last longer. I seriously could have bought my last printer 10 times over with the amount of ink I've been putting in it. I've been replacing cartridges once a month, and that's after printing just like four checks and one 30-page outline for us. It's ludicrous, and not only that, it ticks me off. Stick it to those other greedy manufacturers and kick your old printer to the curb like I did. Take advantage of Dell's exclusive offer to our listeners for 40% off all of their printers. Yeah, that's nearly half off a premium printer of your choice for the same price as a basic printer, plus free delivery. Remember, though, we's using a secret code. (laughs) Sure. You can only get this amazing deal if you first go to our page, dell.com slash legends, and use our secret code, legends, during checkout. You won't see the final discounted price and free shipping until you put that code in during checkout. Okay, so once again, to get a printer you didn't know you could afford, go to dell.com slash legends, L-E-G-E-N-D-S, and find the perfect printer. Then, to get 40% off their lowest price and free shipping, use the code LEGENDS when you check out. And remember, this is for this week only. Greetings, comrades. I am Christoph Andreessons from the Eastern Border Podcast, and I'm here to remind you that happiness is mandatory. And now, back to Comrade Scott and Comrade Forrest. I am watching you. All right, so now we're going to go back to the very earliest beginnings of Mr. Plummer. Where did he start from, and how did this huge tale begin? And we go all the way back to Addison, Maine in 1832. At the time, he was the youngest of six children whose ancestors, it was said, had settled in the area in 1634, way back when it was still part of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So he had a lot of deep roots in the area, at least, and again, seafaring roots. And it was said that he was the youngest of six children, but then I'd read the youngest of seven children. Now, Scott is our (laughs) Ancestry.com detective, and he gets to the bottom of genealogy trees. Yeah. What'd you find out? Well, I couldn't get to the bottom of this one. I'll tell (laughs) you that. It's hard because he's a relatively infamous character. So a lot of people are trying to own him in their family trees. Right. And Yeah, long after the fact. Yeah, so it's trickier still because it seems like he might have been just unnamed son on the documentation yes. when he was born. Right. So that's when things get really complicated, even at Ancestry.com, which has an amazing database and a lot of information that you can get into. There are plenty of families that had kids that weren't necessarily documented or, you know, they or were... they died early, yeah. Or they died early yeah. or they were born in a cabin. There was no hospital involved. There's no... Lots of reasons that things weren't exactly accurate. Yes. And with the variety of books that we pulled on from this episode, which we'll be talking about before we wrap up the series, but they all have varying opinions about who Henry Plummer's parents were. And they cite different people. Right. And you may not think that that's important, but... The facts get slanted, and even something about his very origins becomes a character flaw or becomes a boon to his character. Yeah. So one case in point here, talking about the origins of his name, even or even the spelling, because it's like, what do you mean, change his spelling after he got to California? Was he trying to run away from something? Why is he changing his name? Yeah. Why is he adding an M? Or was that just history? 
the accounts of the day in the newspapers ends up putting an extra M and that changes the course of your own name, your family history. Yeah, there's lots of reasons. I mean, some people change their names to better conceal their ethnicity if they were- That's true, sure. You know, had an issue with that. Other times it just got misspelled. Some people were illiterate yeah. and didn't know how to spell their own names or right. mistakes were made by census takers. There was so many different things that would happen and in this case, we have at least one book that points to his parents being the specific set of people, Jeremiah and Elizabeth Handy Plummer. Yes. There's another book that suggests that actually Jeremiah's brother, Moses Plummer IV, were Henry's parents. But when I looked online into Ancestry, and I was able to find several family trees that had him in them, yeah. they had yet still different names for parents. Ah, right. But the lineage was all the same, the same number of brothers and sisters, and the dates were all oh, right. that's interesting. So they're really trying to put it together. And I know <laughs> yeah. that I have people in my own tree that the information isn't accurate on. So right. it's hard to say for sure yeah. which exactly one of these narratives is about his childhood. It's hard to say for sure. Absolutely. And the point I was going to make here is that people can take little bits of history or things that they found that they believe to be true, but use it to shade their narrative. And in one case, there's one book, which again, I salute them both for doing a tremendous amount of research. And the amount of work that went into this is to be applauded, but they have a pretty biased view of the sheriff, Mr. Henry Plummer, in that he was actually a pretty good guy. Yeah. And always was, and was just railroaded throughout his whole life. Yeah. Those authors are Ruth E. Mather and Fred E. Boswell. I believe they are a married couple, but they added to the narrative too, or, or hammered it in that they, I believe, did some genealogical research themselves and found him to be born in Maine in 1832 to Jeremiah and Elizabeth Plummer, with the one M spelling at that time. But here's something that they note about that, <laughs> the finding of the genealogical records. He was descended from a long line of Puritans and, quote, his values and ways of thinking did not stray as far from these roots as we have been led to believe. Yeah. So they're making a connection to good Puritan values and, and stern, religious, pious behavior extending all the way to Henry. Yeah. And then if you look at Frederick Allen's book, A Decent Orderly Lynching, which we are going to be referring to a lot as well, you'll find that Allen, who is very respectful of the research that Mather and Boswell did, will tell you that he believes that Henry was descended from that man's brother. I see. That Mather and Boswell are suggesting. So it's right. just a question of where does it come? And he's doing his research much more currently. Their book preceded, it was published, when was That's their true. book was published in the uh, 70s or... I can't remember exactly, but while Forrest looks that up, there is something to be said for doing the research more currently, and certainly after the birth of the internet and Ancestry.com and the ability to get a DNA material from people, it's a lot easier to dig down on people's history now than it used to be. Yes, 1987. Right, of Mather and Boswell. So that's the first edition on that one. So they were doing their research in the many decades leading sure. up to their publication of the book. And the other book by Frederick Allen, which was published in 2009, it may be a little more current, but either way, and a lot of times you're just going back to the library and that information is old. <laughs> so right. I'm not suggesting that you can't do that kind of research with older material. I'm just saying, on balance, I think that maybe Allen's supposition that Henry's dad was Moses yes. IV, I think that that's more likely, but right. there's no way to verify it. Usually with the other stories we've done in the past, I'm yeah. able to go on and find a solid tree that points to everything and right. all the brothers and sisters or whatever. But Henry had siblings, but he yes. never had kids. And no, he no. did get married briefly, and we'll talk yes. about that. 
but there were no children. So Not at the time. I'm not sure if that would have made any difference. As you'll see, he was probably living a little too loosely and wildly to have kids, but it seemed like he definitely wanted to get married. He did do that. But the point about his upbringing, though, is that it just colors the rest of his life and how you view that. And as we just said, Mather and Boswell use his lineage to establish, well, he's of good stock. He's yeah. a good main stock and uh, a pious man. And that has carried him through the rest of his life up until his demise. So again, I think it's good to establish the truth. We may never know the answer, but as we go along in the story, some things are shaded one way or the other. Yeah. And it's not just about history, about what you decide to put in. It's also about what you decide to leave out of your account, which some things may look bad, so you don't include it. Yeah. You don't mention it because it doesn't further your narrative. And also history is filled with plenty of people from great stock who have done horrible things. Yeah, that is true. Children of great people who just didn't end up so great yeah. and ended up doing bad things. But it's pretty common to that area coming from New England heading out west. All right. So now Henry begins his journey through life as a teenager and at the tender age of 19, after his father died, he sets off for the California Gold Rush. And in April 1852, the 19-year-old Henry sailed from New York on a mail ship to Aspinwall, Panama. This is before the Panama Canal, so then you got to travel a little bit over land to get to the other side. And he travels by mule train to Panama City, where he's going to board another ship for the rest of his journey onward to California. And this trip, let me tell you something, before the Panama Canal is the operative thing there, because you could either try to sail all the way around the Cape. Yeah, that was a long journey. Which was a long, arduous journey. Or you go down to Panama and cross the Isthmus, which also is a very unpleasant journey. In fact, I'd like to read a little section of Frederick Allen's book yeah. regarding the trip. Four years into the Great Rush, the trip to California was still a rough piece of business. Those who decided to cut their time at sea by crossing Panama had to stay in the squalid hog hole hotels of Chagres. <laughs> Yeah. cover 68 miles of muddy jungle by dugout canoe and mule and hope against hope they could avoid dysentery, cholera, and other disease while waiting six weeks or more for an overpriced ticket on a fast steamer from Panama City up the Pacific coast. Yeah, boy. Yeah. That's from Frederick Allen's book, A Decent Orderly Lynching, The Montana Vigilantes. Yes. This is not an easy trip. This is a guy with fortitude, as we're always talking about with well, the that's people a, that's from this generation. You, exactly. I mean, and he was sickly to start with. He may have been trying to take that trip through Panama because being yeah. at sea was more of a threat to his health. Right. I think over the extended period of time, now he started off with poor lungs as a kid, but he grew to be more robust into his teens because he got out there and stomped on the Terra. He, yeah. he rode around quite a bit. You have to be in good health to be a law enforcement person because you're often manhandling people. But this is an arduous trip. And as I'd read up on a little bit of the Panama Canal, that's why the French gave up the first time, which made it so hard. There's tons of mosquitoes. They were getting yellow fever. It was rough. It's rainy. There's landslides. There's a lot of mud. And it's a very arduous trip. And it took about 24 days after his departure that he arrived finally in San Francisco. And what people do is that's the major city there on the West Coast. You arrive there and you either stay there and find a job or you venture inward into the territory to try your hand at mining or ranching. Yes. And that's kind of what he did. Because at this point, mining was a little bit played out in terms of you're going to find it, it strike it rich. And right. mining is now a $5 a day job. 
It's yeah, that's, when that's you don't the get deal. profit sharing. Exactly. You're Be, just going and doing it for somebody else. <laughs> you can try and do that, but mining in general is very hard work and it requires some luck and knowing how to read the terrain. And that's the deal with placer gold is that it's eroded gold off the mountainsides. So eventually everyone's going to scoop that up. That's probably the easier gold to get, especially by yourself. So if you couldn't do that, the next best thing is to go work for somebody else that had a producing mine and you just become one of their employees as a miner and yeah. you took a paycheck for that. Yeah, exactly. So he winds up going and actually deciding that he's going to try and start a ranch with a partner. So they set up this ranch about 15 miles north of Nevada City and it goes okay. And in fact, Alan mentions in his book that at one point he publishes an advertisement or a thing in the paper about somebody's errant ox that had come into their territory, <laughs> right. onto their ranch, and if they wanted to come get it, which would be an indication in terms of character, which we're going to be talking about his character a lot throughout this, yes. this series, would be an indication that he's, at least at that point, he's an honest guy. I believe this account of him is that he is, in a lot of ways, an upstanding young man at this point. But as people get older, sometimes their demons catch up to them. Yeah, and so it turns out, though, that ranching doesn't go that well, and it's a hard life for him because— sure. It's as, also very, very hard work. It is yeah. very, very hard work, and with his lung issues and the possibility of tuberculosis in his future, it just doesn't work for him. So yeah. he decides he needs to take in a little bit of an easier city job, right. and he moves back to Nevada City and gets a job as a salesman for a bakery there. Now, he probably had multiple sources of income. It's hard to say for sure. He was apparently really good at cards. <laughs> yeah, he picked that up. And gaming. And yes. he well, knew he, a lot of people. He did. And he was a very social guy, you could say. He did well playing cards, and he was a frequenter of saloons. Yes. And lively places. So what we can say, though, is I do believe that he was drawn to the West because of gold, about earning a fortune here. Yes, as everyone else was. You didn't come out all the way west to say, I'm going to get into baking. Right. No. <laughs> you came out to San Francisco because you wanted to get into the gold fields because that was the buzz. It was quick money. They knew it was hard work, but these people weren't averse to hard work. And I don't believe he was either. Yeah. He was just slightly sickly when he was much younger. I think he got much better as he got older, but he seemed to be hardy enough that he could stand the rigors of Western travel at least. So he was doing that, but I believe when he first arrived to San Francisco and Northern California area, it was to pursue mining and prospecting. Yes. However, we're not sure how well that went for him because there's some reports that said he at least had uh, shares in a mine or he owned a mine. And then other reports that we trust say that there was not much mining going on at all. He didn't do very well in that field. So he eventually, what happens? He winds up getting into the bakery, as we mentioned a minute ago, yeah. and as a salesman and right. does really, really, really well at it. Well, here's the due thing. Due to his charisma exactly. and his outgoing personality and, right. and his ability to win friends and influence people. Oh, winning people over and selling them on something goes throughout the rest of his life. Yeah. Up until a point. The deal is he was doing better, as we said before, as most people did with mining even. It's better to have a regular job and something you enjoy doing, you end up making more money than taking the chance on some of these other speculative enterprises. But that's what a lot of people were doing. So yeah, he was a very sociable guy. He was well-liked. He seemed ambitious. Again, he was handsome. So he charmed the ladies. 
And it's one of those jobs as a salesperson that you get to meet a lot of people in town. And so they became enamored of him. Yes. And he grew that business so much. He was so industrious with it that it expanded and kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And ultimately, he had made so many connections with new clients, with businesses, with bordellos and saloons that were all <laughs> yeah. buying, I guess, bread yeah. and well, whatever else. Needs, you need your daily bread. <laughs> yeah. And it did really well. So then they figured out that they thought they might be able to benefit. And this is what always happens when yeah. you get something good going, you don't want to screw it up. But I guess they decided that they could benefit from a better location. So he and his partner mm. sold their bakery and bought another one and thought that it was going to do really well there. But it turns out all their customers stayed loyal to the old business uh. and their thing collapsed. Yeah. Now, at this point, he knew everybody in town. That's the good news. Sure. And a new job presents itself or a new opportunity. Yeah, right. Well, still being a young guy at about the age of 24, some of these accounts vary about how old he is. I still read at the end here how old he was later on in life, and it doesn't jive. But it's saying here at the age of 24, he became marshal of the third largest settlement in California. So in 1856, he was elected sheriff and city manager of Nevada City, and he was doing so well and popular in that role that eventually his supporters urged him to run for representative in the state assembly as a Democrat. Now, however, at the time, these were very fractious times, even before the Civil War. And the party was so divided that they couldn't mount a good campaign for him. So he didn't really get full backing or utilize the momentum well. And he ended up losing, but it, I guess it was a close election. We do have a guy now that's kind of rising in a little bit of power. It was super close. It was... Yeah. I can't remember exactly. Was it? It was like yeah. 417 votes to 424 or something. Oh, I see. Yeah. 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 So like, you know, a little less than a thousand people voted, but it was very yeah. close. Well, he had a fighting chance. Yeah. And also he's getting a lot of notoriety, which I think he enjoys. He enjoys being in a position of authority, like with Sheriff. Uh, he's managing people and he's a people person to a large degree. So he's getting some notice. However... As it goes on, he is enjoying the nightlife, shall we say, in Nevada City. Yes. And is a frequenter of the ladies who are sometimes called soiled doves, <laughs> the painted ladies. Yes. And the saloon life and gambling, and that all kind of goes together. And we'll say he enjoyed a drink. Yeah, and that led to problems. The other problem was that he was young. He was like 24. Yeah. He was inexperienced. And as a result... He lacked a certain authority, I think, that people looked for in their police force. And in addition to this, he wasn't making the wisest decisions. He was not keeping <laughs> the best company. Yeah. And the other thing that he didn't seem to realize was that being a marshal was about your way with words and talking people down out of conflicts. It's not about well, he, he immediately did, arresting he, people. Exactly, yeah. Which actually got him into deep trouble. Right. He had some of those skills, as we'll see later on in another conflagration, another incident that happened with him where he did talk somebody down. But yeah, you're right. right. He's, he's a, older. Yes, exactly. So yeah. he's a young guy. And yeah, people are aging fast, as we mentioned before, in this day and age. But it's not like you went to police academy and, no. and learned all the greatest techniques. You had to have some of these skills on your own or you learned them on the job or you got killed on the job before you mastered them. Well, and one of the things that happened to him is he had gone into a saloon with a friend of his who was a little bit of a rowdy type and an argument broke out with some of the locals in the saloon. And Henry went to arrest them. But of course, the guy who owned the saloon was like, I can take care of my own problems in here. This is my business. Right. 
you don't need to arrest my patrons. And then that blew up, and then it wound up with people shooting at each other. And the guy who was <laughs> yeah. Plummer's friend, who had come into the bar, got shot and killed by oh. the saloon owner. Accidentally, I think. But right. either way, it didn't work out well. One guy got killed, and the whole thing was kind of a mess. And Plummer was absolved of any criminal wrongdoing. Yeah. But it sort of further undermined the fact that he was pretty green when it came to holding order. And it all started with him trying to arrest people that he probably didn't need to arrest. He should have maybe talked them down or right. tried to calm them down or solve the problem, you know, the Andy Griffith way. Well, you know? <laughs> right. With it, Barney's it just... one bullet. <laughs> what you're seeing here, though, is a pattern that forms an entire personality of a man of the era and that he was of slight build. He wasn't a big burly guy. So you're thinking maybe it's somebody who's, again, he enjoys his notoriety. He's persuasive. But when somebody doesn't respond to that persuasiveness, he's liable to use his given authority as a public official, in this case, law enforcement, and he doesn't have as much tact. It's a weird combination. He is very charming, but in some areas, he lacks a lot of tact. And a lot of that, as you said, was being young and inexperienced and not knowing the best methods to achieve his goals. Although he did get to be very successful just based on his charm, but but it also got him into a lot of trouble. I just read that one of the big shaving companies spent over $750 million to research and develop one of their top-selling razors, and that was in 1998. Yeah, it's one of the many reasons shaving razors are so dang expensive. Now they got to make all that money back. Also, their profit margins in the top sellers are huge. But they're no dummies because they knew if they could ever corner the market, they'd recoup that investment and then everyone would be stuck paying 32 bucks for a pack of eight blades. You'll pay half that for a Harry's blade that's just as good as those overproduced shaving systems, in my opinion. Why can't you expect high quality for a fair price these days? Why, I demand it, sir. Did, did, did you just go back in time? <laughs> I did, actually. But seriously, look, Jeff and Andy, who started Harry's, knew that if they could find a way to provide the consumer with a really close shave using a high-quality blade and handle, lower their profit margin, then sell it directly over the internet for a decent price, they'd turn the industry upside down, which is exactly what they're doing. Turns out, Jeff and Andy are just as sharp as their blades. Well played, sir. <laughs> well, Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades, they're going to let you try their trial set for free. You just cover the $3 for shipping. Tell them what they get, Forrest. Harry's free trial set comes with a weighted ergonomic razor handle, which I personally think looks pretty cool. It's very nice. Yeah, it is. Five precision-engineered blades with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. That's a $13 value for you for free just for trying them out. Stop messing around and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your free trial offer set. Again, it's a $13 value for free. You just cover the shipping. Once again, to get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel, go to harrys.com slash A-L-P right now. Pause this podcast and go immediately right this second. That's harrys.com slash A-L-P. Unless you're in traffic, you know, driving. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah. yeah. You know, there is a connection to the legend of Henry Plummer and the course we're currently watching over at The Great Courses Plus, The Other Side of History, Daily Life in the Ancient World. You think so? I mean, compared to the ancient world, Henry Plummer's time period was like five minutes ago. Well, The Other Side of History course talks about what it was like to be an ordinary, regular person and what daily life was like throughout history. And we're getting a glimpse of frontier life in the American Old West. 
And the course also deals with the question of like, who gets to write history? What sticks? And what narratives does everyone end up believing? Okay, I see what you mean. Do we totally take the side of the vigilantes and Thomas Dimsdale's contemporary account? Or do we believe all of the points of the revisionist historians? Or does the real truth lie somewhere in the middle of that? Precisely. History's always alive. And with new discoveries being made all the time, our understanding of the past keeps changing too. Take the 78 flint tools discovered on a beach in Norfolk, England in July 2010 that Professor Garland mentions in this course. Scientists now believe Britain was occupied by humans at least 840,000 years ago, about a quarter million years earlier than what they previously thought. That's exactly right. And that same July, a new analysis of bones found in a cave in southern England's Cheddar Gorge confirmed that the hunter-gatherers who settled there around 14,700 years ago practiced cannibalism. And not only that, they were serious about it. <laughs> well, they probably got tired of all that cheddar cheese. Uh, you stole that joke from Professor Garland. <laughs> I know. I love his sense of humor. You know, there's plenty of incidents of cannibalism in the Old West. Uh, you mean Alfred Packer, for example. Well, that's one of them. I actually hadn't heard of him until a listener contacted us just this past week asking us to do a show on him. But we don't have time for that right now. <laughs> if you want to check out more of these connections, head on over to The Great Courses Plus, where you can learn about everything from the Mayo Clinic's Guide to Pain Relief to the Theory of Everything, the Quest to Explain All Reality. Plus, you can get a whole free month with our special URL. Boy, if that ain't an Astonishing Legends kind of lecture series, I don't know what is. Just go to our special URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-S right now to get your free month of unlimited access to over 8,000 lectures, streamable on any device. You're going to love all the knowledge, rabbit holes, and cannibal caves. So one more time, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends to get your free month of unlimited lectures. Hi, I'm Zoe Sylvia. Doing a segue on Astonishing Legends is the closest I will ever get to waving the glow stick on Disney Channel. Now back to the show. There were a few more events that took place that didn't play out well for him. There was a friendly fire incident mm. with a posse that, in which the sheriff, he was a marshal, sheriff got gunned down and killed. Yeah. He was exonerated, but he was again in the middle of this thing that just looked like it was mishandled. And there was a lot of partisan politics going on as well with the difference between the two parties. There was this group called the Know Nothings who were nationalists, essentially. Yeah. And then this other group who were more, I guess by today's terms, liberal, it's, democratic. Yeah, except that the terms are not like they are today. We all have to remind people that who aren't yeah. real familiar with 19th century American politics and political parties is that, oh, we think Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, he was an, an abolitionist and anti-slavery and did all this stuff. Yes, but he was a Republican. Yes. You got to learn your history here about the many political parties that were happening at the time. We'd previously talked about uh, the Copperheads and yeah, there's just so many of them now. But basically, Plummer, being from New England, I think that had a lot to do with it. He is a Democrat and a Northern sympathizer. He's not a Southern sympathizer. Yes. The West being a mix of both people who are for the North and people who are Southern sympathizers and all these various political parties. And that's why we said before the Democratic Party that he was put up for for running for state assembly was not together enough to mount a good election or good campaign for him. And he ran with several other Democrats for state assembly while right. still marshal, and he had a pretty stinging defeat. Yeah. And this plays to the point that 
it seems like everyone's pretty impressed with him when they first meet him. And for a while, he <laughs> yeah. covers some ground. Right. And then eventually, it seems like people kind of lose faith in him. Well, that is the theme of his entire time or the ending here for Nevada City. Yeah. Yes, you're exactly right. I think he gets to a point where his charm, due to his other personality bugaboos and little uh, affects that he has that go along with who being Sheriff Plummer, eventually kind of wears out his welcome. Yeah. And here is a very important turning point because it's possibly the first documented crime that Sheriff Henry Plummer commits. On September 26, 1857, he kills John Vetter. Yes. And we don't know if it's murder yet, but we're about to find out here, possibly. Yes. So Henry Plummer's first possible recorded brush with the other side of the law, and of course we don't know what happened, uh, you know, he seems to be getting out of a lot of scrapes. Yeah. With the law, legal legal troubles that were just like, barely. Well, it's like not enough to charge him, so we can't really do anything, and he slips out of it. That doesn't mean he's totally guilty, but when you've got a, an increasing number of those, you got to wonder if you're not making the best choices. Yeah. As Marshall, though, one of his duties was protecting Lucy Vetter from her abusive husband, John, during a child custody suit. So they were a quarrelsome couple, to say the least, always having fights. He was also their landlord. Plumber. Yes. Yes. They well, lived in the house that he owned. <laughs> and they had hired a friend of his to help them negotiate their troubled marriage, which was apparently intensely troubled. And they were violent with each other. Right. But I guess stayed together because they had a one-year-old daughter. Yes. They're one of those couples. Yeah. That the other friends are like, geez, you guys should do something about this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. they're still together. So that was the case. And it's hard to say who's at fault, but Plummer is kind of in the middle. And again, he's the protectorate of Lucy Vetter. Well, then there's jealousy that builds up. John Vetter's a very jealous guy. And there was a lot of rumors at the time that maybe Plummer had a lot more to do with Lucy Vetter than just protecting her from a law enforcement standpoint. Right. And John seemed to think that she was running around as yes. well. Other men apparently and had, her, right. had her followed on occasion. Yeah. Well, that's a little pot boiler that's brewing up here between the three of them. And what happens is that there's an altercation one evening and Plummer ends up shooting John Vetter and killing him. Now, his claim was that it was self-defense, that Vetter fired on him first. And here's another point that gets brought up in the history books here, or these books written by historians and, and authors, and that how you want to shade this, because as we said before, Mather and Boswell... Who wrote Hanging the Sheriff, a biography of Henry Plummer. Right. It's very favorable, glowing and gushing to the point in the overall innocence of Henry Plummer. Yeah. That it just, yeah, it was a matter of circumstance, he looked... Like he might be guilty, but there's a good explanation for why he slipped out of these things and he really wasn't guilty. Right. And they maintained that there was a bullet hole in a fence post, right? Yes. Well, Outside that's the a, door. I believe so, yeah. That, that the, indicates that, right. that Vetter definitely shot at Plummer. Yes. Now, this is a point that's made in Frederick Allen's book, A Decent and Orderly Lynching, that... Yeah, there was one person who testified that a shot was fired. It went out of, the, I think, the kitchen down the hall or whatever it was, stuck in a fence post. And that's what Mather and Boswell claim. It's like, well, there you go. He got fired on. However, they didn't mention the fact that there was some other credible testimony after that by several people, I believe, that Alan points out, where they said, like, no, no, that was an old hole in the fence post and had been painted over prior right. to this altercation. And then there's some other compelling testimony that Vetter never even fired a shot. Now we're getting down to the real questions of Plummer's character. And I do want to say something that we maybe didn't mention up until this point. 
in addition to losing that election and having the friendly fire incident and the, and the other issues that he had been having, he was getting a little bit of a reputation. Again, this is partisan politics. There's a lot of mudslinging going on. But there were people who were right. saying, oh, he drinks all he's drunk. I can't tell when he's drunk and he's right. not drunk. And it's hard to say. I mean, is he being swift-boated? Or, <laughs> you know, this was He's certainly not helping himself a long time out. ago. Again, so. because, yeah, he's hanging around with shady characters. He's not exactly uh, the town deacon here with his behavior. So he's giving reason people to think that he is possibly nefarious, that he's not of the best character. So that's already happening. Also, there's people who are starting to get a dislike for him. Yeah. And it didn't help in his trial because it was reported that there were affidavits that at least three jurors were clearly biased against Plummer before the trial. And right. his defense this is the attorney, trial. Yeah. This is the trial for killing John Vetter. Exactly. So he goes on trial. Now, he says it's self-defense, of course. And as we said earlier, the definitions for self-defense weren't as liberal as they are today. You had to really be clear because, again, this is the Old West, and everybody could claim that, like, it's all self-defense. So this would come up in Plummer's life a few times where he got into an altercation and claimed it was self-defense. And other parts, yeah, it looks like he may have been just defending himself. But in this case, the self-defense strategy of his defense attorneys does not work very well, and he is convicted of second-degree murder. Yikes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. So it's kind of serious at this point. However, David Belden, his defense attorney, was able to present a case to the judge that there were clearly three jurors that did not like Plummer yes. before the trial happened. You know, they were making some statements. One had said, as soon as he shot John Vetter, you know, that guy ought to be strung up. So that's not the guy you want to go to jury for you. This was be impartial. Yeah. And also, I just want to remind everyone that Belden was actually friends with Plummer. And yeah, and had, political allies as well. I and believe. a political yeah. ally, and it also become an unwitting referee in the Vetter's relationship before John got shot and killed. By right, Palmer. right. Yeah. So the judge, Judge Searles, pondered the matter for two weeks, as Alan says in his book, in whether or not there was clear bias here. And eventually, though, he rejects the defense attorney's plea for a new trial. That yes, there might have been some bias, not enough to stage a new trial. They're also expensive and time-consuming back in these days. Right. They are very similar to how they operate today as far as like the procedures and the outcomes. You think it's like, yes, it is back in the olden days, but reading about some of the little similarities as far as like, yeah, jurors talking about it, hearing about it in the news, yeah. being influenced, those are applied as the same rules back then as they are today. In any case, on January 18, 1858, Judge Searles sentenced Plummer to 12 years of hard labor at San Quentin, which is a nasty place back then. Today, it's the oldest prison in California and one of the oldest in the country, but even back then, it was a nasty, squalid place, so yeah. it's pretty serious. But the judge had some doubts about the verdict, and the bias of the jury and all that had to be considered, so he freed Plummer on a $10,000 bond while his defense attorney, Belden, prepared an appeal to the California Supreme Court for a retrial. Okay. And on that same day, Plummer resigned as marshal. 
Which is probably a Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, once you're convicted, it looks bad. The people aren't going to stand for that anyway. Yeah. And Frederick Allen said that, quote, by the time of the Vetter incident, Plummer had been closely linked with Nevada City's saloon and brothel crowd for more than three years. His friends and political supporters came from the netherworld, and it was easy enough to believe that he had beguiled Lucy Vetter and meant to set her on a life of prostitution because so many of the people in his circle were doing exactly that as their way of making a living. It was guilt by association. Yeah, that's another interesting point there. There's no jobs for a lot of women. So you're, it's housewife. If you're lucky, maybe a, a merchant, you get a job as a shop clerk. But if you're on your own and you're not married, it's pretty tough. So a lot of them turn to prostitution. And a lot of guys who were bad dudes that had a girlfriend that... She, and also, people didn't sleep around. You were either married or you were not supposed to be hooking up with a lady. So they would pimp out their girlfriends to these houses of prostitution that were frequented by a lot of different guys, Plummer included. And, and again, I, it kind of points to having a bad character or a low moral character. But back in the day, a lot of men who weren't married, basically there was no other way to uh, be with a lady, shall we say, unless you got married. Yeah. There was no casual sex. So they went to these brothels, which were in pretty much every major city in the United States, at least in the time, east and west. So yes. Plummer being a frequent customer, well, people start to talk and they notice that. And he's staying up late drinking and all that. And it starts to show a connection between Plummer and some very shady characters. This would come to catch up with him later, even if it's guilt by association. He's still associating with them. Right. So after Plummer's defense attorney, Belden, filed an appeal with the California Supreme Court, they reversed the conviction and they ordered a new trial in a new venue. So he got a, a stroke of luck there. Yeah. They thought like, okay, well, maybe that bias is correct and we should have a new jury somewhere further away. Same thing that they do nowadays. Yeah. So Plummer actually wins later the appeal for a retrial, but he was convicted again and Oof. sentenced to 10 years in San Quentin. So he got a stroke of luck. It didn't go well. And a lot of people say, like, there you go. People were biased, but this was a different jury. There's a lot of back and forth here. So, yes, it was a different jury who again convicted him. And it was done in another venue in another town in Marysville, California. But it's not all that far away. So his reputation probably could have followed him there as well and tainted yeah. people's opinion of him. The other thing that didn't really go well for him is that the retrial, the state produced a witness. This time, she was a friend of Lucy Vetter's who testified that Lucy kept a photo of Plummer. And people were saying, like, well, you know, you know, a married woman doesn't keep a photo of a dude unless she's interested in there. So there's something going on. Yeah. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And well, plus both of them had been oversharing on Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> you, don't put, you don't do the dual shot of yourself as for your profile pic unless, yeah. uh, unless you're married. So, yeah. yeah, that didn't work well. For a status, she had posted it's complicated. <laughs> well, <laughs> certainly it was. This trial could be happening today. It's like the quarreling couple that people wished would get divorced. And that's the thing, you didn't really get divorced too often back then. That was kind of scandalous itself. And it's the landlord that gets drawn in, and he's the handsome guy that steps in. And, of course, he's the rescuing white knight. I'm sure in Lucy's eyes, even if there was anything there, I'm sure she's showing some affection towards her protectorate. Yeah. And John Vetter is a jealous type of guy, probably abusive. That seems reasonable. So here is the first major incident where Henry Plummer kills a man. There is a question of self-defense. There's a question of a biased jury, his bad reputation being formed and maybe hurting him. So in my view, 
he's convicted twice with the same evidence. And the second time, there's a few more bits of damning evidence. Yeah. And even if the jury is biased, like in the first time, and they say there's three guys that were clearly showing bias, then nine other jurors still have to believe he's guilty. It's got to be unanimous. So the other reason this is an important turning point in the story is that it begins to mark a downfall, a slow spiral downwards for Henry Plummer. He loses again on a second appeal, and on February 22nd, 1859, he reports to San Quentin to begin serving his 10-year sentence. Now here's one interesting thing about Plummer actually going to prison. We have prison records of him. When you first check in, they do a strip search, which I'm sure is meant to be humiliating, but thorough. And so now we have a physical description of Plummer. Yeah, it's the first time that we've talked about this, but he was five foot, eight and a half tall. He weighed about 150 pounds. So you would call him wiry, I think. That's what, that's what Alan <laughs> yeah. calls him in right. his book. He had a bad scar on his left forefinger and three other fingers on his left hand were permanently curled inward from a deep cut. I guess you could say he'd seen some violent action while he had been a lawman in Nevada City. Right. He wasn't a desk jockey. He yeah. He got out there and, and mixed it up with people. Well, who knows? We're speculating, but it's interesting to get a physical description picture of this guy. And there is one picture that's been kind of, uh, I think it's been altered somehow, but you get an idea of, of what he looked like. Yeah. But it's also an interesting rundown because he gets a medical diagnosis and it seems the prison doctor, Dr. Alfred Taliaferro, diagnosed him with chronic lung disease at ah. the time. So he could see that early in his youth, he had chronic lung disease. Now, he's still kind of a spry guy. He's getting around, you know what I'm saying? He's not too peaked, but he's not also in the best health, but he's doing okay. He's getting around, doing all this travel, and, and certainly living back then was pretty rough anyway. Yeah. He again charms someone. This time it's the prison doctor who makes him his assistant. This talks a little bit about his character. When he first gets somewhere, he's able to impress people. There's yeah. something about the starting point of a relationship. People are like, oh, yeah, this guy's refreshingly yeah. <laughs> trustworthy and charismatic. Yeah, he did that with Granville Stewart and his brother, who were claimed to be good judges of character. They're very important Western figures in that territory. Also in his diary said like, yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Him and that other guy he's, he's riding with. So he, yeah. he cuts a good figure. Yeah. But what's interesting is, like you said, it eventually kind of wears away. Now, at this point in San Quentin, the jail had been open since July of 1852. And as we said, it's the oldest prison, but conditions were terrible. It was being run by a contractor like we have today, same kind of scenario, but they weren't putting all the money back into the prison or much of any. So Surprise. It, yeah, it was very squalid. The food was terrible. They said it smelled of rotting cod and Ugh. putty bread yeah. and, and just... It, you, oh, they were accused also of benefiting from prison labor, like charging for that, and yeah. also selling pardons. So pretty dire conditions. There's a sign, I guess, that said uh, prisoners that are escaping will get double sentences. And guys tried anyway. It was that yeah. bad. Yeah, There is a sign of Henry Plummer that's kind of an activist. He was trying to stand up to the corrupt conditions of the prison and standing up to the warden and, again, kind of befriending himself to the prison doctor so people liked him there. There was a jailer that met with him every day and got to know him. Again, he's using his charm and not really doing anything terrible. He becomes a trustee, as they said, and he was sent outside of the prison to run errands for the doctor. Yeah. And he would come back, you right. know, and his plan was that, you know what, okay, I'm in jail, but I, again, he's got ambition to do something with his life. So he's going to do what he has to, you know, be on the straight and narrow, do his time well, and get out and start over again. 
So his good behavior in his civic duty gets noticed. In August of 1859, Plummer's supporters wrote to the governor, John B. Weller, asking for a pardon based on what they claimed was his good character and civic performance. So time off for good behavior. (laughs) They're asking for. In this case, he still has people that like him quite a bit. He's got supporters. And and maybe, who knows if it's not political, but he had people in the political realm that were his supporters and just people who liked him, you know, who were willing to take their time out and sign an affidavit, sign a petition that was going to the governor that this guy needs to be released, that his conviction was a little shaky to begin with. And Dr. Taliaferro had also said that he had TB, had tuberculosis. Yes. And on this petition, they said that he only had five or six weeks to live and that he should be released. Was that a TB sound effect there? Yeah. Well, I'm just, it's it's so funny. He's going to die at any minute. I mean, that's not funny. but Well, no, not to him. He's going to die at any minute. You should let him out. He's at death's door. As they said, again, the mindset was different. Talia Farrow, Dr. Talia Farrow and Dr. TB Harry sent a petition to the governor on his medical behalf saying like, yes, he's got five or six weeks and please let the poor man die among his friends. That was the petition. It's like, doesn't matter. And the petition was hand delivered to the governor by Pat Corbett, who was Plummer's old deputy in Nevada City. Yeah, he got more than 100 signatures and he delivered the petition himself. The other thing you have to remember, though, is that TB is very contagious. Yeah, that's true. And Get this guy do, out of here. Exactly. That's the other reason <laughs> is that he's going to start spreading it everywhere. In fact, uh, the always doctor... always think of... Uh, yeah, what's that? I'm sorry. I just always think of um, Val Kilmer as Doc Holliday with his... Ugh, just with that re- cloth in front of his mouth. You start coughing up blood. Now, here's a funny thing because... On one of the errands where he sent out of prison, Dr. Alfred Taliaferro sends him out to get him some supplies. Now, there's a big rainstorm, big squall he's caught up. He's soaked to the bone. Plummer ends up catching a really bad cold, which he here may be using to his advantage. Yeah. Because now he looks like he's at death's door. And he's coughing up blood, which sometimes happened with TB. He looks like Doc Holly, where he's kind of green. And he's kind of greenish gray. He's looking really bad. So what happens, though, is that the governor grants his pardon. So here, it seems in the nick of time, or at least time to go die with his friends, he gets pardoned. And on August 16th, 1859, Plummer walks free. Now, what's interesting is that he did not get sicker and die. But in about 10 days, he seemed to be much better. Yes, Surprise. Springing back to health. So theory, at least that Alan puts forth, is that he was using a really... He did have a cold. He was sick. He was using the head cold, though, and maybe a little blood from the infirmary, which he had access to, and spots on the pillow, and his pre-existing childhood lung condition, of course, to fake this much more dramatic TB case. This is speculative. Well, um, based, on your part, or no, on Alan's part, on Alan's part yeah. but I would say that it's a good argument because, again, the doctor's like, oh my God, this guy's got five weeks and now he's coughing up blood. And then what we do know is that he goes back to his regular life very quickly. Yeah. Within two weeks, he's back to his old tricks. Yeah. So maybe he just gotten better by natural causes or he's using his charm and a little bit of brain power to speed up his release from prison. You know what else he's starting to sound a little bit like? Yeah. It's like he might have some sociopathic tendencies. That is something very interesting that you mentioned a little while ago, that he does have this kind of profile where he's he charming, uses, narcissistic, yeah. charming, charismatic. He's uh, smart. He's using, though, people, not in a huge way, he's not grifting people really, but he's using the wiles of his charm to get what he wants. Yeah. And get out of stuff. Yeah. 
All right, so now after his pardon, Plummer returns, amazingly, to working in law enforcement. And in 1861, he's hired by his friend who succeeded him at that job, Marshal E.O. Tompkins, who made him a constable on the Nevada City Police Force. I'm sure they were glad to see him again. <laughs> well, his, his buddy is. Like I said, he's got some enduring friends who stick by him through thick and thin. Yeah. For a while, anyway. Yeah. He actually does some good police work. He captures an escapee from San Quentin named John Farnsworth. I'd read this in another account or by another author, Linda Buxbaum, that the last name was Ferguson. It's slightly important here, but basically he actually does some good police work. He is brave. I'll, I'll give him that. Going after an escaped convict back in those days where the guy could just shoot you, throw you yeah. in the bushes, no one's going to find you. Yeah. Who's the wiser? Very dangerous. And he, you know, is fearless in a way. And he goes after this guy, captures him, brings him back to San Quentin to serve out the rest of his term. So there you go. Good deed. He's doing his job. Yeah. Now, Farnsworth, once he gets out, changes his name to Jack Cleveland. And that's going to be important here coming up. Okay. But he's trying Jack to... Cleveland. Oh, that's another thing too. People back then changed their names a lot if they wanted to avoid troubles. Make a new start wasn't always bad. But you know, sometimes you got in a spot of trouble and it wasn't as populous as it is now. So you could go to a new town with a new name and just start fresh. Yeah. And it wasn't like there was a lot of complex paperwork. You just changed it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I think you just started calling yourself that. Yeah. And if any, there was any legal documents, you made sure to note that. So you had some kind of record of it that was documented. Yeah. Well, Plummer supposedly did the same thing with adding an, another M, or we don't know. It may have been the papers that did that, but basically he just went around with another M in his name. Right. So there you go. Made more sense. So Frederick Allen in his book, A Decent Orderly Lynching, The Montana Vigilantes, states that Plummer's return to law enforcement didn't get noticed by Nevada City's papers either way. Nobody seemed to really notice or make mention of it. But it soon became clear that a majority of his fellow citizens strongly disapproved. In May 1860, Marshal Tompkins ran for re-election and was soundly trounced amid rumors that he planned to resign in Plummer's favor if he won. Plummer abruptly found himself out of work. So here's an instance where I don't know if he charmed the guy that succeeded him in the in the role of Marshal that he should resign and I'll take over the job. Yeah. <laughs> That's a weird thing. And other than the guy's maybe going to retire. It's a strange position, but people got wind of that, and they weren't in favor of that. Yeah, that's bizarre. So Allen continues that jobless, chastened, he joined the rush eastward over the mountains to the Comstock Lode near present-day Carson City, Nevada, in late spring of 1860, and took up prospecting. He spent the summer there digging for gold and silver, filing several claims. In the fall, he returned to Nevada City and resumed mining in the northern California foothills. So he's back to trying his hand at prospecting because that's not like a regular job. And you can kind of go off to the hills by yourself and try your luck at prospecting. So it sounds a lot like podcasting. <laughs> well, there's, there's, yeah, except there's actual real worth at the end of that one, whereas we have to uh, beg people on Patreon. Yeah. And, and we love you for it. But uh, so anyway, he's lapsing now into that life after being a felon. So this is kind of his turn from going to doing jail time, which, yeah, that happened, but he served his time. He got pardoned. Legally, he got out. But it's kind of the slide here towards some more nefarious business. So then Allen continues that Plummer's lapse into utter disgrace started on the evening of February 13th, 1861, at a 
house of ill repute, shall we say, yes. called Irish Maggie's on Pine Street. And this is what's weird. It's not far from his old bakery. So ah. he's kind of sticking in the neighborhood there. Yeah. Well, Plummer was upstairs in a bedroom with a woman when another customer, W.J. Muldoon, well, that also sounds like a bar, <laughs> Muldoon's, <laughs> banged on the door demanding to be let in. According to the newspaper accounts of the time, Plummer opened the door, exchanged curses with Muldoon, and then struck him heavily on the head with the butt of his pistols. He pistol whipped him. Oh. That didn't do him any good. It really cracked his skull open. And I think he kind of stumbled out there. And Plummer was afraid, like, geez, I might be killing this guy. I mean, like, bad concussion yeah. from what I remember reading. He stumbles out in the street bleeding pretty badly and, and, and disoriented. And yeah, you can kill somebody yeah. pretty easily. People fall over, hit their heads, they die later. So in a strange outward showing of his charm... He befriends Muldoon in public because he didn't die, but he sees the guy like, hey, buddy, remember the, when I cracked you on yeah. the head with the pistol? <laughs> like, yeah. hey, sorry about that. But, you know, we were all drinking and we're at the house of ill repute and you know how things go. Yeah. So he befriends this guy again, trying to buddy up to him. And, and I think the guy was like, all right, you know, let bygones be bygones or whatever. And Plummer's doing this for a reason. He's fearing that, geez, this guy, boy, if he died... It would look, again, bad. Fallon here at yep. a prison, hitting a guy, even in self-defense again, but killing him at a bad location. Yeah. <laughs> in a not-so-nice yeah. location. His efforts, though, proved worthwhile, I guess, to Plummer in publicly showing that, no, no, we're friends. We're cool. He's cool about it because he, the guy died a few days later. Uh, Actually, several weeks later. Yeah. He took a turn for the worse and died. And Plummer was not charged. So he's lucky in that regard. I'm sure there's witnesses as to what he did. And he could have been charged because the guy banged on the door and he hit the guy. And it's not really like the guy threw a punch. You yeah. know what I'm saying? So I'm sure that there's people who saw him in the bordello do this because the guy stumbles out. It's a commotion. The guy's banging on the door and they see who it is, who hit him. So he skirts prosecution once again. Here we are in 1861, and I come across some other information that I'm not totally sure about this because it's a little bit vague. It is an author who writes this, Kathy Weezer, on a website that specializes in Legends of America, and this one's Montana Legends, Henry Plummer, dash, Sheriff Meets a Noose. And the reason I included this was that it's got some fun stuff in here, which, again, I can't tie this to a specific incident. I don't know if this was actual uh, proof here, but she's got some very fun claims here. So she writes, before long, he was penniless, and he soon joined a group of bandits intent upon robbing area stagecoaches. So it's, this is before he gets to Bannock, of course, and before he's sheriff again. It just seems like he's now needs some dough. He knows enough ruffians that will pull this kind of stuff off. In one such incident, Weezer claims that they actually did rob a stage, but the driver got away with the passengers in the cargo, but Plummer was arrested. I hadn't seen this in Alan's book. I might be missing it because I was kind of jumping around. Yeah. But he didn't get convicted because upon standing trial for the armed robbery, there was an, a lack of evidence. I mean, it fits the pattern. I just yeah. don't know if this incident was true or which one she's referring to. But this one's like, it's pretty brazen now. He's actually trying to rob stages yeah. with some of his uh, bad news buddies there. So on some of these other websites, it states that this may have happened in Washington territory. So again, it's, it's a little foggy to me, I'm not sure, but if it did happen like that, that's a pretty brazen dip into actual armed robbery. So in any case, if it's true or not, he skirts the long arm of the law and, of course, gets into trouble again and another skirmish. So now we're talking about October 27th, 
1861, he kills another dude. So now it's 2 a.m., and Plummer gets in a fight with a Southern sympathizer named William Riley in the foyer of Ashmore's Brothel in Nevada City. Maybe over a lady, but it's more likely about politics, because as we said, Plummer's sympathies lie towards the North, and around in the area, there were a lot of Southern sympathizers who were secessionists. And William Riley appears to be one. So it sounds like it might have been a drunken brawl over politics. I'm sure alcohol and whiskey was involved. It's a late night. They've been, uh, they've been at it for a while. Well, Riley ends up slashing at Plummer's head, and he cuts through his hat, and he gives him a long gash on his scalp. Pretty bad. So Plummer draws his pistol and shoots Riley dead. So another guy dead. Yeah. And this isn't good. This time he goes to jail and it's looking pretty bad. Is this self-defense? I mean, it does. It sounds like self-defense to me, but I don't know. Well, sure. Actually, who drew first? Did Plummer draw the gun first and the guy pulled up the knife? Well, it sounds like, yes, the knife was drawn first. Plummer is defending himself. But again... It's hard to get cut in the head after the (laughs) other person's been shot. Right, right. Exactly. So it probably is self-defense in some way, but he's a felon in a brothel. So again, none of this looks great. And he's trying to pull his life back together, but his old demons keep coming back. Yeah. This is where a few days later, one of the employees of the brothel, <laughs> well, this a working woman comes to the jail <laughs> claiming to be his yeah. wife. This is three days after the incident here. And he's a good looking guy. So right. he's got uh, She's like, no Can I see my of- husband, please? <laughs> yeah. She convinces the jailers that she is his wife. And again, these are still proper times. So if it is a lady of the evening, they're like, no, you can't go in and see this dude. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. But them thinking that she was the wife, she's like, okay, fine, go in and see your husband. Well, she goes in to see him, and moments later, Plummer escapes into the street. Well, there you go. A little bit of a jailbreak there with the aid of his uh, lady of the evening, which I think was his girlfriend at the time. By the former town marshal. Yeah, that doesn't look good in the papers nowadays or then either. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It was the feeling at this point, though, is that he escapes, but they don't really look too hard for him at this point. They kind of do a uh, half-hearted search and give up around midnight. They're like, you know what? If we never see this guy again, maybe that's the best thing. And also because if they put him back in jail, you know, he's pardoned now. So I think he's still got time on the ticker there for his second-degree murder charge. Yeah. A retrial, however, would have been really costly and time-consuming, again, like it is now. Yeah. So the local authorities are saying, like, eh, if he just, yeah, if he just skips town, that's fine. He's somebody else's problem now. So essentially the town was glad to see him go. Now here's a little passage that I think is fun to read that Alan has in his book that sums up the feeling of Nevada City and how they feel about Plummer at this point. Alan says, writing in the Democrat, which is the local paper there, editor Tallman Rolfe, Plummer's one-time advocate and political ally, called his disappearance prudent, quote unquote, given the widespread antagonism toward him. Bidding him adieu with a cruel but candid assessment, Rolf added, quote, If Plummer shows as much tact in staying away from the county as he did in leaving the jail, the community should have no particular reason to deplore his departure as the cost of an expensive trial would probably result in leaving him here, a most useless, if not dangerous, man. So, in other words, as Alan says, his old friend was saying, good riddance. Again, more evidence that 
people start out friends with this guy, yeah. and as time goes on, they're like, yeah. "Ugh, get him out of here." Like, he's he's not like the guy that keeps <laughs> borrowing your yard trimmer and then never returns it. It's yeah. kind of like, and or he's does not, return it and it's broken. <laughs> that kind of guy. I think again, people's mindsets at the time were different, and so they see him as kind of a, a shady character. Like he's charming and he's well spoken and he's persuasive, but how he behaves at in the evenings and probably for most of the day when he's not working is not of good character. Yeah. That he drinks too much, he's kind of rowdy, and uh, he hangs out in the brothels, and he has friends that are possibly criminals. So yeah. that's another big thing. Even if he's not, he does seem to know a lot of people that are not adverse to breaking the law. Right. So now we got to remember that he's badly injured. He's taken a pretty significant cut to the head. In spite of this, he manages to cross the Sierra Nevada, arriving in Carson City, Nevada. And he asks an old friend of his there, Billy Mayfield, who was a professional gambler, that tells you something about his friend, <laughs> and a petty criminal yeah. to hide him in his cabin while he recovers. Now, his escape had generated a warrant for his arrest, even though they didn't look too hard for him, and the California yeah. prison authorities launched an inquiry into rescinding his pardon. Carson City Sheriff John Blackburn got word that Plummer might be in his jurisdiction and started asking around. His suspicions turned towards Mayfield after Mayfield professes ignorance of Plummer's whereabouts. And this keeps happening over time. More questions, more denial, more suspicions about Mayfield. Mayfield moves Plummer to a friend's cabin and hides him in a false ceiling in the rafters. Yeah, he gave him enough uh, food and water to, I'm sure a bucket, you know, yeah. and then sealed off the rafters so it didn't look like there was anything up there. But he just tells him to hang out and chill while the Sheriff Blackburn is looking for him. Now, on November 18th, 1861, Sheriff Blackburn finds Mayfield drunk in a saloon and tells him he's going to arrest him for harboring a fugitive. While he attempts to do this, Blackburn gets him in an arm lock, taking him out the door, and in the struggle, Billy Mayfield stabs the sheriff several times in the chest, killing him. Yeah. So, on the run, and with his protector in jail now awaiting murder charges, Plummer's whereabouts are not clearly known. He skipped out of Carson City and was then rumored to have traveled to Salt Lake City, San Francisco, and then Walla Walla, Washington. Yeah, those were reports of where he may have popped up, not in that succession again. So the records of where he skipped out to are pretty sketchy. Weren't there reports that all of those reports themselves about where he might have been, he might have he might have been the one sending him in? <laughs> well, there is one newspaper account where it was claimed that he'd been caught and hanged in California. However, if you start thinking about it and how persuasive and manipulative Plummer may have been, it's possible, some speculate, some authors, that Plummer may have sent the notice to the paper himself. Right. As a way of saying, he's been caught and hanged. Don't go looking for him anymore. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here, <laughs> which you know, gets people off his trail. Yeah. So after all of this, Plummer vanishes for eight months. And when he returns, he comes back with a vengeance. And what ensues are a series of events that are both legendary and hotly debated to this day. That's going to wrap it up for part one of our series on Henry Plummer. We'll be back in about a week with part two, if Scott can remember how to edit. We'd like to thank Upside, Harry's.com, Dell, and The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring the show, as well as our wonderful patrons at Patreon.com. Special thanks to John Boland. 
Hi, I'm Avery Bray. I'm Zoe Sylvia. I am Kristaps Andres. And, and I, I give permission, permission to Astonishing Legends, Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide, in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.